John chapter 3. That's where we are. John chapter 3. So, our text for today is one of the lesser talked about parts of John's gospel, but actually in my view it's kind of one of the more beautiful parts of it actually. Um, the clarity of it plus the um, what John the Baptist says here is like life-changing if you grasp it. Uh, maybe it gets eclipsed by the incredible conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then John's commentary where we get John 3.16, God's incredible love that has him send his son to die for us. So I know that kind of overwhelms everybody when they're reading this, but um, these incredible themes, they probably should take precedence, those parts. But the last section of John chapter 3 is of great value and it, it reaffirms all these great truths that you see earlier in the chapter but also has a great practical thing. So um, it also brings, it just kind of from a story point of view, it kind of brings John the Baptist story to an end as far as this gospel goes. Uh, but it's not just doing that. I mean it's very purposeful. And again it meets this incredible need. Early on in our study we talked about how John the Baptist was an, a very influential figure decades after his death. And we talked about how the Apostle Paul ran into John the Baptist followers in Asia Minor um, tw 20 years after John was long gone. And then Aquila and Priscilla, friends of Paul, they found this super gospel preacher, Apollos in Ephesus and he was an incredible guy and he'd never heard of Christian baptism but he did know about John the Baptist's baptism and he was aware of that and he was from Alexandria, Egypt. So John's fame, especially through the Jewish community, was incredibly <coughs> wide, very wide. His influence lingered long after his death. Even a thousand miles away from Jerusalem that was true. So. Remember John, uh, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John in Ephesus. So he's many years later after Paul in the same city where John had such a, John the Baptist had a big influence. So John the Apostle is, he knows how important John the Baptist is. So he's bringing him back into the story here. And you're going to see here why what he says is so important in just a minute. But so I, I think the statement he makes here is one of the great things in the Bible just practically speaking to help you and me live for Christ in this dark world. This, and this world can be awfully distracting and pull us in a lot of different ways. But, um, and worldliness can get in our hearts pretty easily. So what John tells us today is pretty important. So uh, let's remember our timeline here. I'm going to walk you through what's happened so far. So Jesus was baptized by John at which uh, Jesus was declared the Son of God. Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. He comes back. Where does he come back to? John the Baptist. Picks up a few of his top disciples and takes them with him. He goes to a wedding where he very quietly turns water into wine. And then he spends a few days in Capernaum. And then he goes straight for the heart of Israel, Jerusalem. During the Passover, he goes into the temple and kicks out all the money changers. Remember that? So that's all that's happened so far, really. And then Jesus stays for the whole feast and he's healing people and preaching the kingdom. He's instantly famous. And it's only been a few weeks since he came back from his uh, time in the wilderness there. So that we're still very, very early in Jesus' ministry. And that's where things kind of pick up at verse 22 in chapter 3 here. So I'm going to read that. I'm going to read from there. So it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them, with his disciples, and baptizing. 
verse 23, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. It's always good to have that for baptism service. And people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So what do we find out here? There's two baptism ministries going on in a parallel way in different places at the same time. John's continuing what he's been doing all this couple years probably and Jesus is starting to do it too with his disciples. So um, in fact one of the gospels tells us that Jesus personally didn't baptize people but his disciples did so he kind of oversaw that. So um, now uh, John the Baptist is still preaching repentance and preparing people for Messiah's kingdom. So now in verse 25 kind of an interesting thing happens. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, with a Jew about purification. Well they're all Jews. But usually when John mentions a Jew like that he's talking about somebody important like some leadership person. So that's probably he tends to do that in his gospel. So it was probably a discussion of baptism but he says about purification. We don't know what the the theological issue is not important. Whatever they were talking about that, that just got them together and, and brought some of John's disciples back to him where he personally was doing his work and so this conversation comes up. So we mentioned before that the, the very idea of baptizing Jews was radical and that's what made John stand out. Aside from the official religious system of Israel he was outside of that and they, they would baptize Gentiles to get rid of all their Gentileness you know if they converted to Judaism but you didn't baptize a Jew because they didn't need it. They were saved through Abraham right? That was a common belief back then. And here's John saying everybody needs to get baptized in preparation for the Messiah. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone needs to have faith which of course is true. But that was kind of in the face of everything the Jews had taught about their own salvation. So we all need baptism. We're all in a polluted state not just Gentiles. That's what John was saying. So he was trying to get everybody on board. Um, but this conversation with John is, a, it is actually about Jesus baptizing. So whatever brought them together to talk about some issue for your purification issue or something the, the conversation turns to Jesus being a baptizer. Okay? And it's pretty clear that this question um, the guys questioning John about this think that this should be an affront to John. This is a bad thing that Jesus is doing. He's like stealing his marbles or something. He's like, that, that's his program you know. Uh, does he have a trademark on baptizing? I don't know. But he, it's that kind of an attitude about it. So verse 26 they came to John and said Rabbi he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testified he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You see how that's a, the John people are like excited for John? Like hey something's going on here and you need to be aware of it. So that last phrase all are coming to him. John they used to all come to you. But now they're all going to him. Like Jesus is stealing your ministry model. You know? <laughs> He's becoming more popular than you. It's kind of like pop stars that count how many magazine covers they're on. And if they're on less they fire their, man their campaign manager, I mean their uh, business manager. But anyway um, that kind of stuff. But John the Baptist, these guys love him. He's their man, right? These are John's disciples. He's been the man in Israel for years now. He's been the top dog. He's been the, the mover, the shaker, the spiritual center of Israel. And this Jesus guy has taken all the attention. 
John, we love you. We want you to know you are still our man. That's kind of what they're saying. I don't think they knew their man as well as they thought they did. <laughs> I don't think so. But isn't that what we want to hear from people, right? How wonderful we are. I know. I love it too. Keep it coming. No. <laughs> too often it's actually the case. For, gr for great men, great men have a responsibility. Especially great men in a spiritual realm, right? A great responsibility. And John the Baptist was a great man. Jesus said in Matthew that he was the greatest man that ever lived up until his time. So he was a great man. And the great man's responsibility is to not let the admiration of followers and those that are loyal to them go to their head. That is their greatest obligation of a great man because it's really easy for that to happen. He must never let loyal adoration lead him to vainglory or to be puffed up or to think it's all about him. The truly great man cares for one thing and that's doing what's right on his part. He doesn't care if he gets adoration or not from people. The exaltation of oneself is an incredible danger and we see it all throughout our culture in all different areas, business, entertainment, politics. No, nobody's like that in politics. But uh, <laughs> it's a disaster for a man of God to fall into that kind of mindset that it's about them and their, their ministry, their movement, their, their church, their name, all that kind of stuff, getting out all that kind of a thing. There, there's plenty of vanity and ego and pride in the world. We don't need it in the church. But it, you do see it in the New Testament. In churches. Because it's a common human weakness. I mean that's typical of humanity. The misguided need for recognition. For the pat on the back. For loyalty. Loyalty from others. Right? The desire to be above others is a very powerful force in the human heart. And the Pharisees were like that. They, Jesus said they did what they did. Their super dedicated religiousness. Their tithing everything, even the seeds, like, oh, I've got a, a, a bag of seeds, I've got to tithe, make sure I get 10%. Why would they do that crazy stuff? Jesus said it was to be seen by men. That was really what was in their heart, that men would think they were more righteous than other people. They didn't do it for God, they did it for themselves. It's so common. And Jesus, that's why he called them actors, they're hypocrites, because they talk about the Lord, but they're really wanting the adoration of people. That's what their ministry was about. And what did Jesus say about them? They have their reward in full, right? You wanted human adoration, you got it. We'll see how that works out on Judgment Day. Because those people's opinion of you isn't going to matter. Only God's opinion is going to matter. That's what Jesus said. And the Corinthian church had, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in that area, Paul had to deal with this whole issue of parties in the church. I'm a Peter man. I'm a Paul man. I'm a Jesus man. Those kind of, those kind of things, right? This party spirit going on. This loyalty camps. Then it wasn't from the leaders. It was from the followers that this was going on. And then in 2 Corinthians, you have the leaders doing that. The, the super apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. They show up in town. They've got all these great spiritual gifts. And they love talking about them. They're like these guys on TV. They tell stories about themselves and how amazing they are. I just, I just saw one the other day. He, uh, he, he created a squirrel out of nothing. He, he willed a squirrel into existence. This guy's like a preacher. Anyway. <laughs> I can think of a lot cooler things to bring into existence than a squirrel. But he heard that somebody else did it, so he had to do it. So he's in the woods and he 
created a squirrel because he has the power of God to create out of nothing. That, I, that's a human preacher claiming that. Anyway, um, Third John, we saw that back when back in the day when we were in Third John, the, the letter of John, First John, Second John, Third John. <laughs> that guy Diotrephes, remember he talked about him. He was obsessed with being number one, and he kicked people out of the church that disagreed with him. And John said, "Quote." He loves to be first among them and does not accept what we say. He wouldn't accept what apostles said. Personally chosen apostles like the apostle John. This guy Diotrephes was too, too big for that. You know he had to have his little way about everything. So he was so into himself he actually ignored an apostle. That's, that's amazing. So the lure of power. Even over a tiny little domain. My local thing. I need to be somebody. I, I am not content with being a servant. In fact, those people out there, they need my leadership, you know. And then if, you, if people are kind of weak-minded, they go, yes, we do need your leadership. Oh, yes. That kind of a thing. So here in John chapter 3, John's disciples are jealous for him. Jealous for him. They're standing up for him. John, we are your guys. And they want to make sure he knows that Jesus is out there gaining in popularity and doing the very thing John's been doing for a long time. We want you to know. So how does he respond? How does this great man respond? He starts with a really clear principle. A man can receive nothing unless it is of the Lord. So God chooses the roles that we have, right? And our duty is to be faithful to him. To those duties that he gives us. Verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent ahead of him. So my life's purpose, he says there, is to announce the Christ. Guys, he's here. That's what he's telling his men, right? He's here. You want me to feel slighted because the son of God is more popular than me? Where is your head? He doesn't say that exactly, but that's, that, that's, that's where he's getting to. How could you possibly object to the Son of God being more popular than an unworthy soul like me, a sinner like me, right? He's, he's saying, I, I was called for this. And what was I called to? To prepare the way. Whose way? His way. That guy Jesus out there. I waited for this day. It was my task to bring our people to this day when he would come. This day when Jesus would take his place among us. A herald doesn't desire to be the king, right? He announces the king and that's his job and that's what his joy is to do that. It is sinful, it's dangerously sinful to aspire to be above the task that God has chosen for someone. And John's task was absolutely clear. There was no confusion about his role at all. The angel Gabriel came down while, while his, John the Baptist's father was serving in the temple, bringing sacrifices in the temple. An angel appeared to his dad. And told him what his son was going to do. And it's in the Bible. So they must have kept the memory of it. And they must have told John when he was a young man. What the angel said. Here's what the angel said. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner. Before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. For the Lord. That was his job. That was his purpose in life. And that Jesus is becoming the focus of the people of Israel. Can only gladden his heart. 
that he's seeing the fruit of all the preparation that he did. He doesn't care anything about fame. He doesn't care about that at all. So how does he explain this to his followers who love him and respect him and want to him to be honored and lift him up? How does he explain it? Well he comes up with a perfect analogy. Here's John the Baptist's wisdom here. Picture a wedding. Anybody here been to a wedding? I've been at a lot of them, usually standing in the front. <laughs> in fact, we got married. We were at a wedding together. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I remember that too. I was a shaky little kid. But John brings up a wedding and uh, what? There's, al- there's always this guy. For me, it was my friend Scott. He was my best man. That's what, that's what he did. He read, he read a little note that Laura wrote me and as part of our wedding, you know, he did all kinds, there was, he did certain things. Best men have certain jobs they're supposed to do at a wedding, and it's different from culture to culture. But in ancient times, that guy was called the friend of the bridegroom. That's what they called the best man. And he had various roles depending on the culture he was in. Probably his most important role was not being the center of attention, right? The best man existed to serve the groom. That was his primary role to make sure that everything's going well. In a Jewish wedding, he actually helped plan the wedding, organize the wedding, and for the wedding itself, he went to where the bride lived and escorted her back and presented her to his friend, the, the groom, the man that was going to marry her. He did not make a big show about himself. That's not what best men do. So that's, so in verse 29, John talks about this role. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, right? But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full, John says. John says, I'm just the best man. That's my job. Think of it like that. Just so this joy of mine has been made full. He is supremely happy to be in the role of preparation to bring the bride, God's people, together with the groom, the Messiah who's finally come. It's his joy to announce him, to bring him, bring them together. He's supremely happy to do that and to see Christ actually present and having people go to him and be baptized by him and and see hear his w- words and be attached to him. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what he wanted. There's no jealousy in John. There's no sour grapes about it. There's no competition about it. There's no disappointment. What's the word he chooses? Joy. Joy. There isn't any sense of, gosh, more people are going to see him than they're coming to see me. He's on more magazine covers than I am. <laughs> He's making more money than me. It's the bridegroom who has the bride, right? Jesus is the bridegroom and God's people are the bride and he is honored to bring the bride to the bridegroom. Now I told you we have here a very great practical statement from John the Baptist that we should all take to heart. Um, Maybe think about it every day. Put it on a plaque somewhere. (laughs) But we see the emotion of it in his bridegroom analogy here. The emotion is joy, right? But in verse 30 we see his joyful submission to God's plan. And here's the simple thing that he says. Talking about Jesus, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
Those are really important words. The one key element of John's greatness or one of the top ones is his humility. His humility. He's faithful to God and the place that God has him and he's thrilled to be able to fulfill that role that God has given him. That's his great joy. And this simple statement here that he makes should be the theme of all ministers, preachers, evangelists, religious broadcasters for sure, authors, publishers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, teachers of the word, people in the pew every Sunday should all say in their heart, this is what should be going on with you, Christ must increase and I must decrease. That's, that's a principle of Christian faith. Jesus himself said, the one who is greatest among you will be like the youngest and the leader like the servant. That's how it's supposed to work in the church. Luke 22, 26, right there. That's how Christians define greatness in their leaders. It's not talent. It's not eloquence. It's not giftedness. It's not how excited they make me. It's, it's a servant's heart that they want to see in leadership. But you know, I look around this room and what do I see? I see a lot of average people. Average Janes and Joes. That's what I see. And that's great because I'm one of those too. The average Joe can say he must increase and I must decrease. Because that's what we want to see happen. We shouldn't get to the point where we need to be glorified, honored, talked about, all of that kind of stuff. And I think because we're average Joes and Janes we probably don't do that very much. But there's all kinds of little ways that creeps in. So we all want to be aware of this. Our motto should be, he must increase, but I must decrease. And all that we think or do, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase. So in my heart, in my affections, and the things I most care about, he must increase and I must decrease. Does that make sense? In the way I choose to spend my time, he must increase, I must decrease. When I'm blessed with a lot of stuff, a lot of worldly things, because I've been very successful in life, he must increase and I must decrease. When I struggle just to put bread on the table, he must increase and I must decrease. When temptation comes and my, my weaknesses are after me, they're trying to pull me down to assault me, Satan's waiting to pounce on me, Christ must increase and I must decrease. If there's conflict between a brother and a sister in Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. The principle, it's like the golden rule. You know, the golden rule, do unto others. You can apply that in every situation in life. Also in every situation in life, I can't think of one situation where he must increase and I must decrease can't apply. That's what it's, that's what it's about. Guide your life by that. That keeps you in the spiritual place God wants you in your heart, in your motivations. Am I magnifying Christ or is it about me? And if it's about me, I must decrease. That's the lesson for today. But we've got more verses here. So let's move on. Starting at verse 31 to the end of the chapter, then there's a number of concluding statements about the person of Christ and his great importance. And the, the more we see him, the more we grasp him, the more we can let him increase. That's why he's pouring out all this about Jesus. The better more clearly you see him the easier it is to let him increase in your affections in your heart and your motives and what you choose to do with your time we take ourselves off the podium if you will so now these verses are a little bit like 
verse 16 through 21, you remember when we were back there and, and I, I said, after, after verse 15 of John chapter 3, scholars disagree about whether Jesus keeps talking all the way through the chapter or if John, it, Jesus stops at verse 15 and then the famous verse, John 3:16, is John commenting on it. And I said, my opinion is that that starts John commenting on it. So then John tells the story about John the Baptist, so it's very similar. So is verse 31 through 36 here, is that John the Baptist continuing to talk after he says that really important thing, he must increase but I must decrease? Or is this the Apostle John stepping in again at verse 31 and reaffirming who Jesus is and how he's the source of eternal life and why he's so important? Scholars disagree. So, and that's okay. Because they don't have quotation marks, remember, in, in the ancient world. They didn't invent those yet. So you kind of have to figure it out sometimes. But I actually think this is John the Apostle commenting again after John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. I think this is John commenting. That's just my personal opinion. It doesn't really change anything. But um, I actually think it's kind of John's pattern because back in chapter 3 verse 14 and 15 Jesus makes this sort of definitive statement. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And that leads right into John commenting John 3.16 whosoever believes in him, right? So I kind of think this is similar. So verse 30 is John the Baptist's definitive statement. He must increase, I must decrease. And after it, John the Apostle elaborates for the reader why Jesus must increase. Why that must be true for you as well. And why? Why, why is it? Because of who he is. And so he's going to go back through all the things that have been said about him so far and kind of reaffirm those things, restate those things. He's reinforcing them. For example, um, verse 31 and 32 kind of pick up the themes that were in verse 11 through 13 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. It focuses on the unique authority of Jesus as one who is quite literally from heaven. I mean, that's what those verses were saying. And one could say, you know, John the Baptist, you could say he's called by heaven. He was sent by heaven, but he's from the earth. So the son of God is actually from heaven. He came forth from the father. I mean John 1 1 right in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God he's God become man so in verse 31 notice here John you, John kind of refers back to those earlier verses verses 11 through 13 he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth he who comes from heaven is above all so twice he says that he who comes from above is above all and then between those two times he says it, he sandwiches in, in between them, he who is of the earth speaks of the earth. So even though John the Baptist is a real prophet, he is of the earth, right? He had a beginning and his life began here. He's just a regular human being, no different than us in that way. And he speaks what? Did John come down from heaven, John the Baptist? No. He, he, God revealed things to him. So he speaks what God revealed like a prophet does. He is a true prophet, but he's of the earth. He even saw things that he can talk about. What happened when he baptized Jesus? The spirit came and descended upon Jesus and he saw that. He actually said, I saw that happen. So he can talk about that. He witnessed that on earth. So John is just a man testifying to what God has shown him or told him to say. Jesus can testify by what's going on, about what's going on in heaven. And who the father is. And all these incredible things. Because he's from there. 
So, and it's his heaven. He made it. And it's his earth. He made that. He made everything. Christ made everything. Verse 32. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. So he's referring to what he has seen in the courts of heaven. Christ and what's been decided in heaven. Christ. Jesus knows all of that. He knows all that God is doing. The whole picture. He is above all. He says above all. But here John is reiterating what Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter um, 3 verse 11 through 13. Back up in verse 11 he said we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. This is Jesus talking and you do not accept our testimony. So now John repeats that idea in verse 32. No one receives his testimony. Right? So it's the same idea. He's just taking what was said earlier and he's reinforcing it again. In verse 32 no one received his testimony. What Jesus said earlier John summarizing now. Verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who is from the earth speaks of the earth. Verse 12 and 13 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. Jesus said if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And this is when Jesus drops the bomb. No one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven the son of man. And that's the name he always uses for himself. Right? Jesus descended from heaven. So Jesus is set forth as from heaven in both of those sections. Back in 12 and 13 and then here in the 30s. So Jesus to Nicodemus and John reflecting on everything that's happened and repeating that same theme there. So John's reasserting themes that Jesus set in place himself earlier. Let's look at verse 33. He who has received his testimony. So he says people rejected the testimony of Christ. But he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this. That God is true. So if you believe what Jesus says you're taking your stamp of of approval on it. And acknowledging that it's true. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he God gives the spirit without measure. So John's saying many people didn't accept Jesus testimony. Maybe he didn't meet their expectations as the Messiah. He seemed quite a gentle fellow and the Messiah was supposed to be this warrior king. What happened to that? So some people rejected Jesus on those grounds. Some people hated him because he exposed their man-centered, hypocritical spirituality. That's why the Pharisees hated him. But the real reason is back up in verse 19 of chapter 3. Men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's the real reason people reject him. They don't want to be exposed to the light. And be forgiven. They, want, they love the darkness. They actually love the darkness he says. When that darkness is gross sin. They love that. When it's religiously re- wrapped up pride. They love that. It doesn't matter. They can be uh, horrible people culturally speaking or the most spiritual people culturally speaking but they can have the same level of darkness in their heart because it's not about God it's about them. So verse 32 is assuring us that those who accept Christ's testimony they are the ones that agree that God is true and God proclaims Jesus as his beloved son that's what he's done and when you agree wholeheartedly with that you're taking your seal your stamp of approval on that great reality. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lord of all. He's above all things. So God is true. You know God doesn't lie. And he doesn't break his promises. And Messiah has come. Just like he's promised. And the Messiah is clearly Jesus. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. 
You know, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it's a wonderful thing, but it's just really a bit of him. <laughs> but Jesus gets, has the Spirit without measure. It's, there's no limits to it. That's why he could do all the things that he did as a man. So on Jesus, the sent one, unlike any other man, including the greatest prophets, Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist, only on Jesus did God pour out his spirit without measure. He's fully possessed of God's power and wisdom. Without limit, he says, although he was a true human being, he was a real man. But because of where he came from, the person of Jesus in a human body, the person came from heaven, and that's God the Son. Paul says something even more amazing in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 where he says, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's pretty amazing. So Jesus is, Jesus is not a man among men. He, he is quite literally the creator become man. So he's not just, just the best human being that ever lived. He is that. But he's that because he's God in human flesh. Micah said the Messiah's goings forth were from long ago, from days of eternity. Isaiah called him the father of eternity in Isaiah chapter 9, remember? So he's the eternal one and Jesus lacks nothing because he is the very incarnation of God. He came from heaven, he is above all, he possesses the spirit without measure as a man. No one is like him, John wants you to know who Jesus is. That's why he's telling you this. Why? Why would he tell you all that about Jesus? Because he must increase and we must decrease. He gets the glory. It's all supposed to be centered around him. He's the center. And now John the Apostle, friend of Jesus, the man who knew him best, starts to kind of bring it home here. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. All things. Whatever God does, he's given it all to the Son. Now, I'm not going to get into the Trinity and all of that right now, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're equal in power and glory and they're all eternal and everything like that. One God, three persons. But here, God wants us to know that everything that's true about him, he gives to this man, Jesus, God become human. He, it's, it's his, all of it. All of it. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's a common theme we will see in John. All things being given to the Son. You'll see that throughout the Gospel. What does that mean? All power. All authority. All judgment. Even judgment has been given to the Son. That cannot be said of any mortal man. Any mere man. But it is true of God become man. That person. That's why he's talking about this. That's why he must increase in your affections, in your heart, in your time, in your very being, the way you operate your life. He must increase and you must decrease. Why, would, well, why must I decrease? Why can't we both be up there? Because you're not him. <laughs> you're a tiny little sinful creature and he is the eternal God. And just by the rightness of that, we shrink away, not away from him I mean, but we shrink down and recognize how vastly infinite he is compared to our little createdness, right? And that's the right way to understand our relationship to him. God loves us. He died for us. He wants us to be his children. That's what he calls us. But as his children, we're not gods. We're little tiny creature children that have been adopted into his family. 
and fellow heirs with Christ as the Bible says. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He is the beloved of the Father. And the measure of the Father's love for his Son can actually be seen in the size of the gift that he gave him. What did he give him? All things. All things. All things. That's how much he loves the Son. All things belong to the Son, including us. We belong to the Son too. Our destiny is tied to the Son for good or ill. Our very souls depend on Him and what we do with Him. Our destiny is bound up with how we respond to Him. You know, you cannot live in the Father's kingdom and reject His Son. People think they can. They can't. Because all things have been given to the Son. How can you possibly look at the Father who's given all things to them and say, you know, I like you, but I, I'm not real crazy about him. I don't think I need that. Who, who would think to say something like that? He must increase. I must decrease. Not only does the Father love the Son and exalt the Son, but only through the Son can our sins be forgiven because he's the only Savior there is. The Father did not come here and die for our sins. The Son did. No one else paid for your sins. So knowing then who Jesus is in relation, who is Jesus in relation to the Father that we pray to? He's his beloved son and he has given him all things and raised him above all things. Then your relationship with him is central. That's critical. That's a simple plain truth that Jesus is the only way to God and that's why. Because God has given all things into his hands and he's the one that came and died for our sins. All right, the last words now of this amazing chapter 3. Here it is, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Why do you Christians always talk about judgment and hell and all that stuff? It's right here, that's why. Because if you don't come to the Son... If you don't believe in the Son, if you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on you. You see the word obey here? It's interesting. It's an interesting parallel because it says believe and then it says obey, right? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he, does, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. To believe is to obey the call to follow the Son, to follow Christ. Merrill Tinney, a Bible commentator, says belief is a is a commitment to authority, not a passive opinion, right? So when it says believe for eternal life, it doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I believe that. It's not going to do anything about it, but I believe it. I believe it's true. That, that's what he means by that. It's a commitment to put your faith in Christ is to trust in him for who he is as that to you, right? Believing in Christ is a personal acceptance of who he is. He's the king. He's a king over what? Everything. He's above all, it says. Over all and forever. Saying no to him is literally saying no to the king of the universe. That's what it's doing. To believe unto eternal life is more than I believe he's a king. I believe that. It's I believe he is my king. I submit to him. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my God. That's what it's saying. And that's how John's gospel story ends here. In fact, if you go all the way to the end of the gospel, the last thing that basically happens in chapter 20 is 
Jesus appears to Thomas. Remember he appeared to all the disciples in the resurrection and Thomas wasn't there. And then he comes and when Thomas is there and Thomas puts his hand in his wounds and sees that he's real and he's alive and all that. And what does Thomas say? This is how John wants the gospel to end in your mind. It says Thomas said to him, to Jesus, my my Lord and my God. That's the proper conclusion of all the great truths here. That's how John's gospel story actually ends. And why must John decrease and you decrease and me decrease and Jesus increase? Because he is the Lord and he is God. So he must be your Lord and your God forever. Completely, truly. Put your seal on it. That's what it must be. It's because of who he is. The only God there is who literally died in your place and paid the penalty for your sins. What he did is yours. It's for you if you believe in him unto eternal life. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Our great God, let our hearts always magnify the Son, your Son, our Lord. May his glory erase all need that we have for self-exaltation, for pride, for superiority. May he increase always in our esteem and affection and our worship because of who he is. And may we decrease down to the level of beloved children mortal children, created children, basking in your love and glory because we were sinful and you called us into your family through your grace and love. So keep us in the right place as John was in the right place. We pray in his name. Amen.